Today on Pence Exchange, Land Rights and Women Empowerment, the History of State Capacity and Gender Relations in Southeast Asia. Welcome to Pence Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today, we will be joined by Jessica Weshvan Yogratan. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at Chulalongkorn University in Bangkok, Thailand. Jessica received his bachelor's degree in Asian Studies from Whitman College and his PhD in Economics from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Her research interests are at the intersection of economic history, labor economics, and development. She's particularly interested in researching land rights and its impact on modern Thailand. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you for having me. To Westerners, Southeast Asia has historically been the land of spices and riches. To Asians, it was the buffer zone of conflict where Indian Buddhism and Chinese Confucianism collided. A geographical area where highlands and rainforests create the ideal spot for huge, diverse societies to emerge. Today, Jessica will talk to us about how these factors have contributed to molding specific land ownership patterns in the region and how these have contributed to their conflicts and their gender relations. Jessica, before we talk about the history of Southeast Asia, I would like to ask you a more general question on the importance of land titling. How does land ownership and its registry may affect economic performance in the long run? Okay, it's a great question. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, studies on this, uh, trying to understand how does land titling or how does the, um, the tightening of private property rights actually affect different out, uh, economic outcomes. And a lot of the studies come up with um, uh, very strong connections um, between these two. Some outcomes include um, investment in a, a perennial and tree crops instead of annual crops, um, because you have um, a secure land rights, you know you're going to have it from you know year to year. So you're willing to put into uh, these types of investments in longer crops, um, investments in um, irrigation, as well as um, uh, fertilizers. Uh, we also see increased labor market attachment in some cases because you're no longer having to kind of protect your land and you can go off the land without um, fear that somebody's going to take it over. Um, so there's a lot of studies that have suggested that. But having said that, uh, the distribution and enforcement of property rights and land are probably just as important as having these laws about private property rights. And uh, without having this type of equitable distribution, you might actually introduce a land insecurity to um, groups of people. And um, so there are studies that don't show these very strong relationships between um, land rights and economic outcomes. And a lot of the times that's because of the enforcement mechanism. Um, and so we see this as, uh, in Thailand, we see that this is also the case. Great, great. And moving to our special area of interest in Southeast Asia, I remember reading a lot about the concept of Somia as this land mass within the area that is basically impenetrable, where states basically are unable to enforce its rulings. So I would like to ask you, how does geography constrain the ability of states to actually register land property? 
Another good question. Um, let me just move back a little bit in terms of the history of um, sort of the polities in Southeast Asia. So part of this landmass that's called Zomia or has been called Zomia um, does reach the northern parts of, of Thailand. And those areas have been um, historically kind of inaccessible in many ways. Um, historically in Southeast Asia, the uh, government governance system has been called a, a mandala system, where you've got a center of power. Um, so, for example, the center of power in what's now Thailand was Ayutthaya uh, before the 19th century and then um, Bangkok um, later on. And they have very, very strong control over the areas that are directly adjacent to the center, but then uh, waning control as you go out um, by distance. And a part of the reason why you have um, sort of this waning power um, directly over these uh, these areas is because um, some of these areas are really inaccessible. And so it really made sense for states to be organized as more of these uh, decentralized um, mandala uh, states, um, because you couldn't directly rule some of these, especially like heel, um, heel communities that are literally, you know, living in the mountain is very, very difficult to get to. And especially uh, before the 20th century, transportation is very, very difficult. And so it's difficult to get out to these areas. Um, you're having to use rivers um, when they're not dry during the dry season, um, uh, overland transportation, uh, is very slow. We don't have uh, you know modern road system and so on. Um, so it's not even just um, Zomia that's hard to get to. It was even just areas that were not even that far distant out of Bangkok and even like Chiang Mai, which is our major um, city now in the north. Um, it took literally um, a month or two to get to, to Chiang Mai just from Bangkok um, in the 19th century before we had the train system. Um, and so this makes it very difficult to to um, it's not just land rights, but it makes it very, very difficult to um, have I guess government reach out into areas that are kind of beyond the central plain um, in Thailand. And without having direct control over these areas, you can't have uh, centralized um, land titling out in these areas. And so that's what we see um, that um, in terms of registering land in Thailand, it really started in the very central part of the country, the early 20th century, and kind of moved out, but it's still even today, it hasn't moved all the way out into these peripheral areas. I think one of the most recent areas where economic history has advanced is in studying state capacity and how it is correlated with development in the long run. Yet uh, Southeast Asia has been characterized in social science as an area where anarchy, that is societies with a lack of a proper state, actually have succeeded. So I would like to ask you, how would you say the lack of a state has contributed to economic performance in Southeast Asia in general and in Thailand in particular? Yeah, I'm not sure necessarily um, that there's always been a lack of state. I mean, I think there's pockets of areas that um, were not under direct or very, very strong control of um, some states. But, um, but certainly in terms of... Um, long-term development, I mean, I, I just again, going back to the Thai case here, even after centralization and kind of bringing these um, areas that were that were autonomous states. Uh, so as I mentioned, Chiang Mai was an autonomous state. You had autonomous states in the southern part of Thailand, as well as in the northeastern part of Thailand. Um, those states, once they were um, kind of centralized into the system, 
it was still very difficult to reach those areas, um, partially because they had different governance structures. Um, and um, so it was, we're having to kind of um, fold those existing governance structures into the centralized, uh, the new centralized structure of, um, of Thailand. And then there's those areas as you're talking about, these pockets. And I, I would say within um, the, the current borders of Thailand, there aren't quite so many of these really unreachable pockets as maybe some other areas um, in Southeast Asia. Um, but even today, those areas may, are, are still very, very um, difficult to govern because it's just very, very difficult to get out there. And, um, and so we still see that today. And so th those areas are not going to be receiving, of course, all of the um, the, um, the development in terms of uh, infrastructure as well as education and so on. Um, I know a friend who was doing research up in northern Thailand, and they, when they were trying to figure out the study area and do the random sampling, they had to actually concentrate on the southern half of the, the province because the northern half was just really inaccessible. They literally could not get there. And so that does have implications then for um, economic development if the state can't get into those peripheral areas and um, you know invest in education and in infrastructure and so on. And so that does, um, and, and previous research that I've done um, with uh, Chris Peck, um, we have a 2019 article that talks about this, uh, that areas that kind of centralized first got a lot of investments. And so we see a lot of regional disparities based on these investments that were done early on. The areas, especially the ones that are peripheral further out, that got very little investment early on in the 20th century uh, lag behind a lot. And it's still true today. Now that we're talking about the specifics of states emerging in Southeast Asia, I would like to ask you to talk to us a little bit about the history of the Thai state, how it came to be in the very first place. Okay, so a lot of Southeast Asia is uh, shaped by its colonial past. And we had uh, three main colonial powers uh, that were working in Southeast Asia in the 19th century. We had the British, the French, and um, then the, um, the, the Dutch as well. Um, Thailand, as it looks today, the map that we know of Thailand today is really the outcome of, of um, colonial uh, encroachment during especially the second half of the 19th century. And um, Thailand is actually very, very proud of the fact that we are um, one of the only uh, countries in the world that um, was never colonized um, in sort of the colonial areas of the world, um, at least not formally. Um, and the reasons why Thailand was able, or at least at that time it was called ASEAN, uh, was not formally colonized. It was um, because of just many strategies that were taken by the state. And some of those strategies were to centralize the state uh, because you had, as I mentioned earlier, we have this very decentralized governance system, this mandala system where you can't actually govern directly in Chiang Mai because you can't actually get out there. And so you have these areas that are peripheral and there's no borders that are drawn on a map. That's a very Western concept of state, um, of sovereignty, is having these borders on a map. And that's not um, uh, congruent with um, this Mandala type of um, uh, uh, governance system. And so for the French and British in particular, they said, oh, look, nobody actually has that. It's not on the map. And therefore, it made um, the periphery, peripheral areas that were not under um, direct control of Bangkok um, at risk of being um, taken over by the French and the British. And, that's, and we do see that. Um, uh, Siam 
loses about half of its land that it had influence over. I wouldn't say that it was ruling over necessarily, but it's uh, lost half of the land that it had um, influence over um, by um, uh, about 1909. And um, so part of the strategy to kind of stop colonization was centralization. So um, basically saying, okay, those peripheral areas, we're going to now govern those directly rather than indirectly through um, governing families and so on. Uh, they also played a lot of dip diplomatic games. They kind of positioned themselves as this buffer between a buffer state between the French and British. Um, so that uh, geography in, in essence kind of helped um, as well. And then another uh, strategy was the adoption of a lot of Western institutions, including its Western land institutions that it um, uh, put into effect in 1901. And they did that in part to uh, kind of say to the world, hey, look, we are a modern state, just like you. We've got borders. We, um, are, we have a centralized, very strong uh, uh, government system that's kind of based on Western models. We also have Western institutions as well. So that's kind of the background to the okay. modern state of Thailand. For a counterfactual, then, would you say that without European colonization, then Thailand would have never existed, or at least the area that now is Thailand would have remained fragmented, or it would have created a different pattern of nation states? Um, yeah, I mean, if you never go to this territorial state, you would end up, it's not, not so much fragmentation, it's just um, spheres of influence uh, would be different. And it was very common in the past that your spheres of influence would, would expand and contract. And so if you don't have colonization to kind of interfere with that uh, traditional governance uh, type of system, we would see that in Southeast Asia. And, and Bangkok's not the only center. There were other centers in Southeast Asia and sort of um, kind of the, the influence, spheres of influence sort of ebbed and flowed over time. So the, the borders of Thailand, and there's some nice work um, on this by um, Ajahn Tong Chai in particular, are really are an outcome of this, um, this colonial past. Returning to our previous point about land titling and its relationship with the state, from a normative point of view, states should act as unbiased arbiters of land transaction and land transparency. However, we have known for a fact that historically that it has not been the case almost anywhere in the world. So I would like to ask you, how much does states in Southeast Asia have contributed to land insecurity and conflict rather than being observants and contributors to peace and prosperity? Yeah, this is a great question. So again, in the case of Thailand, um, they adopted Western land institutions. So prior to 1901, uh, we had traditional land rights, were, which were based on usufruct um, agricultural rights. So if you, it was almost like a homesteading um, type of deal. If you claimed the land, you cleared the land, and you produced on the land, you could ask for um, a, a type of ownership paper. It's a tax paper, ownership paper. And, um, and those traditional usufruct rights were actually quite secure already um, before the introduction of the Western Land Code. What happened after the introduction of the Western Land Code in 1901 is that um, in order to have a um, title or um, and a deed issued for your particular land, you had to have it cadastral surveyed by the state, and then the state had to then um, issue these land documents to you. Um, the problem is, is resources, right? It, to cadastral survey an entire country takes a lot of time. And so what ended up happening is that they cadastral surveyed in and around Bangkok. And so they issued deeds uh, right in the center 
um, also some um, agricultural areas um, in Ayutthaya, uh, I know in particular, as well as um, uh, what's called the Rangsit area, which is a very famous area for large uh, irrigation works. Um, but they didn't do anything about sort of these traditional rights. So people who had traditional land records or traditional deeds um, or had, um, you know, further out from Bangkok, maybe it was the, the community that um, enforced these rights and they understood that, you know, Mr. Jones had this plot of land over by the river and everybody recognized that. Those rights ended up being nullified by the introduction of these Western, uh, of this Western land code in 1901. And so this had, um, and throughout the 20th century, this had um, impacts in terms of um, land insecurity. So you had secure rights before 1901, but then after 1901, your rights become very ambiguous. And um, there's a lot of, um, and this is um, certainly led to a lot of conflict uh, here in Thailand um, over land. This, uh, we still have a lot of conflict over land today. Um, there was also, um, over the 20th century, the government uh, took over a lot of land in Thailand, um, you know, turned them into national parks, national forests, um, other types of strategic reserves, but people were already living there sort of under traditional rights, and um, they found that they were moved off or they um, lost their rights uh, to produce on land, um, and um, so there's always, it's constantly in the news, there's um, news of different um, land um, uh uh, conflicts and uh, between communities, between corporations, and so on. And it's partially because the land code as it, or the, the land law as it was um, promulgated in 1901, and then it was um, updated along the way, was never fully enforced across the entire country. So you see lots of titling that happened in the central part of the country, um, in some of the um, more urban areas of the country, but especially in the more rural areas, we don't see it. And so uh, since the 1970s, we've seen some kind of backtracking and trying to um, uh, trying to give some, some sort of land rights. Um, so they're giving partial land rights and not full land rights to some people, and that's helped uh, with um, land security and so on. But um, for the most part, the introduction of those, what we think of secure private property rights has actually caused a lot of land insecurity over the last 100 years. Great. Until now, we have focused on discussing what happens in rural areas, in areas where basically the state not only has not improved the prospects of economic growth, but by actually trying to interfere with local ways, has decreased the performance. But I would like you to I would like to ask you what ha what happens in the urban areas. What is happening in Bangkok? My guess is that within these places in Bangkok, at least the state has a tighter control and because of that, the process of registering your land is actually smoother and more clear. And so the relationship between state control and land registry is actually better in those places. Yeah, so Bangkok is a huge city. Um, it is the largest city in, in Thailand um, and it's larger by um, several times from the second largest city in of course, I can't remember off the top of my head the second largest, but it might be Hatyai in the south. Um, but it's it, we're, we're millions of people versus like hundreds of thousands of people in the next um, largest cities, and um, and so we Bangkok became really the center of so many things. It is the center of the economy. It is the center of the labor markets, um, and so on. And as you said, um, the the land landscape in Bangkok, it looks very different um, once you kind of get outside of, the, especially the central 
uh, region of Bangkok. Um, so Bangkok, under the traditional land rights system, had very a pretty organized um, uh, land deed system, a land registry, and this is before the adoption of the um, the Western Land Code in 1901. And so, what was able to happen in in Bangkok, to the best of I can I can figure out from the historical records, is that people who had traditional land rights um, basically could bring their traditional papers in and get it. Um, get kind of in the queue to get um, a, a permanent land right or this new um, type of land deed. And um, so there's a whole structure of, of different administrative papers that are associated with this. Um, so it's sort of like, okay, you come in with your traditional right, you get sort of like a temporary um, paper saying that, yes, you have rights to this land while you're waiting for then it to be converted to a, a, a full um we call Chinot, um, uh, which is the, the land deed. And, um, and so I think for Bangkok, a lot of Bangkok did get deeded. Uh, there's probably, I, I mean, I, I think when I think of land markets in Bangkok, everybody's talking about Chanot land or the land that has the land deed. Um, but as soon as you get kind of in, I mean, you get an hour outside of town, that totally changes. <laughs> and so uh, there's all kinds of different types of land rights um, sort of outside and um, um, in terms of the process of, of issuing deeds, we did see that the deeds kind of hit the land, the rice growing areas around Bangkok, and then also some of the other major cities. Uh, so um, some of the other um, urbanized cities do have um, uh, sort of larger shares of these uh, these full property right um, land deeds than. Um, than other areas, but we don't see those types of deeds being um, completely covering, especially the rural areas outside of Bangkok. Does Bangkok share the problem of having a lot of slums as many cities in underdeveloped nations? And I'm referring particularly to the problem of slums as they kind of emphasize the problem of lack of land titling in urban areas. We do have um, a lot of slums in Bangkok. Um, probably the most famous one is the Khong um slum, which is actually very close to where I am right now, um, that um, kind of grew up around the port area. It was an area that um, was the tra traditional home of workers in the port area of Bangkok. And, um, and there's kind of questionable land rights. Um, so this is always, uh, there's a lot of land rights and security in these types of areas. Um, and there's been some, um, very um, uh, prominent cases um, in the media um, in a, another, you know, quote unquote slum in, um, and I can't think of the name. <laughs> so it's an area in the old part of the town and it's actually within uh, sort of the, the walls of the, um, uh, the fort uh, structure in the old town. And that quote unquote slum has been there for 200 years. And so we have families that were living there for 200 years. And so the community recognized those rights. Community understood whose property was whose, but the government decided um, um, over the last um, decade or so that, that they wanted to, quote unquote, reclaim that land. And so this is, I think, similar to a lot of uh, other urban areas with um, some um, areas that don't have um, clear land rights. Um, people are being um, basically removed from their um, from their homes and being moved elsewhere. And of course, when we think of slum, we think of something that's somewhat um, transient or somewhat uh, and not so permanent. But these are 
communities that have been there for 50, 100, and in the case of this port area, 200 years. And so, yeah. So again, you've got this problem of land, you know, who, uh, ambiguous land rights. Who has the right to, to live in these areas? They were never formally deeded. Great. Let's turn the focus of our talk towards discussing gender relations and its relationship with land ownership. Because I know that Southeast Asia in general is kind of anomaly in terms of being a lower middle income area that kind of has a similar share of female land ownership compared to those in high income countries. So Jessica, I would like to ask you why. How does Thailand in particular has achieved this outcome? This is the million dollar question, uh, something that I'm um, hoping to do a little bit more writing on. I've got some ideas on this. Um, and I have to say, when I when I ran into these land deed records, so just a sort of the little background of how I got into this project to begin with, um, I had gone to the Department of Lands Museum in Bangkok, and um, they had all kinds of of um, documents under glass cases and so on. And I had asked, I was like, you know, what's in that cabinet over there? And uh, we managed to actually get the cabinet open. It hadn't been opened. Uh, it was locked for the last 25 years. And then we found um, basically about 30,000 um, land deeds uh, for uh, provinces in, in central and Western um, uh, Thailand. And then we also, uh, that were issued in the 1880s. And then we also found about 2,500 land deeds probably from the mid-1850s. We think it's from the reign of uh, King Rama IV, written on very traditional um, black paper. Um, and so I started kind of going through these. I decided to digitize these as, a, you know, as an economic historian. I'm like, you know, I'm not quite sure what it's going to be usable for yet, but you know, just collect the data. So I you know, got a, a, a small grant to go uh, have a student help me take photographs of everything. And so I've actually spent the last 10 years trying to digitize all of, the, all of these records as, you know, money has kind of uh, come available over time. And I've literally just finished um, everything. <laughs> so just finished putting in all of the data just about <laughs> 10 years, uh, to about two months ago. And, um, and I've been uh, over the actually last couple of weeks, um, been um, analyzing um, just the, the demographics of ownership. And this has been the thing for the last 10 years that has really struck me is that it doesn't matter if it's 1850, it doesn't matter if it's 1880, it doesn't matter if it's Bangkok, it doesn't matter if it's the peripheries of, you know, of Western Thailand, women are front and center as landowners. Um, and in fact, they make the majority of landowners. And so there's been this kind of niggling question of exactly why is that the case? And just a couple of things that really have um, come up is just that women are extremely central to um, agricultural production. Yeah, especially in rice growing regions. Now, the, the the data I'm looking at is actually specifically orchard land. It is not rice land, but for rice cultivation, women are extremely important um, for um, that process um, of planting, of harvesting, of preparing, etc. Um, which is in contrast to say um, a, a lot of field agriculture in other countries, like um, in the U.S. I was doing some work on um, historical Utah. And that was more about, um, you know, sort of brute strength and force. And so um, it required more, I guess, male um, inputs for, for that type of field agriculture. So I think that's one uh, reason. Um, and that's certainly a, a reason that has been kind of posited for um, areas with matrilineal uh, um, uh, uh, 
you know, um, what I'm trying to say, like um, bequests and so on, like land moving through the matrilineal line. Um, that's often in cases where um, women are very important to those production processes. So that's one thing. The other thing that's very specific to Thailand is that uh, men in the past had to um, be involved in uh, corvée service to the government. So usually between one month and six months per year, they would be gone um, doing some sort of service uh, to the government. Uh, they may also be um, called on to uh, become a soldier. Um, men also did longer stints as monks, for example. And so they were often away from the home. And uh, women are the ones that kind of held down the fort. And so in that sense, especially if um, you know death rates are quite high, death comes, uh, from, we have all kinds of wonderful bugs here, malaria and um, other types of, of tropical diseases. And then, of course, with war and stuff, then it would make sense that women would have rights to the property um, if the probability of, of a partner's death or, or some other family member's death is, is quite high um, in these stints outside of the home. So those would be kind of the two factors, I would say, is why we see such high rates of, of female ownership um, in this area, at least historically. And how would equal access to land contribute to larger economic development in general, and to broader gender-inclusive societies? Um, great question. Um, so land itself is uh, represents both wealth as well as a productive asset for the household. Um, often this asset is not distributed equally within the household, so that maybe that one person has kind of rights over this and other people don't. But because women here have clearly defined rights over land and they have a, the a recent work I did with, um, with Tanya Pon Jankrajang um, that was uh, published earlier this year in the Economic History Review, we look at the fact that women are able to, to take complaints up to the courts. And so they have standing in a, the very legal sense. And um, it seems like they were just as likely, in fact, more likely to win a lot of cases uh, when there are um, land disputes. So if you really do have control over this asset and control over the production that comes out of this asset, um, then um, from a, a household bargaining perspective, women should have higher bargaining power within the household and be able to um, uh, dictate in some sense where um, resources go. And, um, and I think the current or like the, uh, the modern version of this is uh, the conditional cash transfers. And so a lot of um, international uh, programs and, and national programs give cash transfers to families and they usually go to the mother. And the reason why is because a lot of um, uh, previous era, empirical work has suggested that mothers tend to use those resources to develop the next generation. So they, they spend on healthcare, they spend on education, and so on. So again, if you have women that have control over resources and have control over um, allocation of resources within the household, there's um, just empirically, there's a, a better chance that everybody within the household, both boy and girl children, are going to have better outcomes in terms of health and in terms of education, which of course is really important for gender equity and equality. And we are, um, and so today we have this case in Thailand where women are more highly educated than men. Um, and on average, I mean, if you look at the gender wage gap, it's actually reversed in Thailand. And I do believe that the reason why oh, we've gotten to this—it's very interesting, right? The reason why we've gotten to this point is yeah. partially because of the historical roles, economic roles of women, 
and um, their uh, very active participation in agriculture, in land ownership, in production, in marketing, etc. They're very, they've always been central to the economy in Thailand. Oh, that, that is super interesting. I didn't know that the gender wage gap was reversed in Thailand. Yes. Do you see any differences in rural areas compared to Bangkok? Uh, there are some differences. Um, we tend to see some regional differences, but even the places where men have uh, an advantage in terms of the gender wage gap, it's not very large. It's quite small. And um, there's been just a rapid decrease in the gap um, over the last about 40 years. And um, it's pretty dramatic when you plot it out. Um, so yeah, it's another area. Um, so I also do kind of modern labor economics as well. So it's another area and it's yeah. actually a paper I'm currently working on in terms of the, the, uh, closing and reversal of the gap in Thailand. So how common is in Thailand to actually see women become not only business owners, but also more traditional mage, male jobs, such as construction worker or maybe taxi driver? Um, yeah, it is actually um, common for construction work, um, although most of our construction workers actually do come from neighboring countries. It's not, um, we, okay. we've gotten to this point, <laughs> we, we've gotten to this point where, um, I mean, the education levels in Thailand are, are quite high, um, uh, especially kind of compared to the immediately uh, neighboring countries. And so uh, people tend to uh, take work in other sectors. Um, but women are more likely to get bachelor's degrees. Um, a lot of women go into teaching, and that actually is um, one of the areas that is a fairly well-paid. Um, I mean, it's a, you know, a nice, stable government job, yeah. quite well-paid um, relative to taxi drivers. And so um, this is part of what's driving this kind of reversal of the gap is because women are, on average, getting much more education than men are. Super interesting. And in terms of public policy, do you see any kind of differences there? I mean, like, do you see enforcement of gender quotas or something like that? No, and I was actually, I was just having this conversation with somebody the other day. Um, there's a lot of people who don't feel like we need gender quotas uh, because uh, compared to a lot of country, women do have access to a lot of, I mean, they have access to education, they have access um, to most jobs within the labor market. Um, but it doesn't mean that there isn't a, a place for that. And one of the kind of strange things about Thailand is even though women um, are definitely involved in the economic life of Thailand um, and some of the, the you know, most powerful business owners here in Thailand are women, uh, we see a lot of CFOs that are women, um, et cetera. Um, so even though we, we um, see this, we don't see women participating in politics so much. And so we see them in business, but not as much in politics. And of course, if women are not in those types of decision-making um, seats, then um, there's a lot of issues surrounding women that may not be considered. And uh, so this is a bit, uh, I mean, this has always been worrisome and it's, it's definitely, um, people are talking about it. So this is a, certainly um, a topic that is being discussed about why do we have this disparity between women's participation in the economy but not so much in public life. What about gender disparities due to pregnancy? I am aware of research on Scandinavia, an area famous for its gender-inclusive policies, where gender divergence starts emerging by the moment the mom gets pregnant and has to abandon her job to take care of the child. Do you see any similar pattern in Thailand? Or how does pregnancy affect gender disparities in the Thai culture? 
So if you are formally employed, um, and the majority of the country is not, but if you happen to be covered by Social Security, um, you're guaranteed uh, basically 90 days of leave at partial pay, um, and you're guaranteed to have your job back at the end, uh, which I have to say is better than the U.S. <laughs> so uh, the U.S. is like nothing. So I was I was thrilled when I heard that. Uh, so uh, we do have a short uh, amount of um, leave time, and um, men also have a very short amount. And I, I I can't remember the laws changed recently, so I can't remember how many days it is, but it's not months; it's just days. Um, so, I mean, in terms of, I think, um, having to completely drop out for like a year or two before coming back, we don't see that. Um, we either see people um, do take those three months and then come back, um, or they do just drop out completely. Um, so there is, in fact, when I talk to my students in my class, um, they are often like, I have no plans to get married. I have no plans to get children, to have children because it's just too hard. So we don't have um, sort of like state provided um, childcare, for example, um, maternity leave is quite short. Um, even we do have it, but it's uh, quite short. Um, there's not a lot of um, support for for women um, who don't live in extended families. So it used to be that it was the grandparents that would you know, help take care of the kids. But as, you know, people are moving into Bangkok out from um, outside, a lot of those family structures are, are actually being severed. Um, and so if you're working at least in Bangkok, um, then you may not have um, childcare here, or you have to, your child has to go and stay with grandparents outside of Bangkok. So um, there's a lot of work to do um, in that area, uh, just like there are in, in many countries. And I do think that this is a, um, a problem for, women kind of making it to the top um, as again, as like in a lot of countries um, because there isn't support. So a lot of the women I know that are at the top of their co uh, companies um, never had kids. And so, um, and they say that it would be difficult to do so and be able to be competitive um, in this market. So the way that Thai women have solved this problem is literally by not having any children at all. Uh, yeah, our, our birth rate is really low. <laughs> so I just I actually just did another interview about this for another podcast about uh, low birth rates, low um, marriage rates, and so on. And again, I mean, when you have a situation when um, women are on average making more than men and have in some ways better career prospects, then there, the, sort of that traditional role of marriage for financial security has kind of gone away for for women and so women are like <laughs> why should i get married so um so we are seeing that as part yeah. of what is driving this um uh reduction in the marriage rate as well as in the birth rate um, we are a rapidly aging society and um yeah there's just not that many young people anymore well thank you jessica it has been fascinating talking about thailand in general i think we have a lot to learn from it Well, thank you very much for having me. This is great fun. Up until very recently, the fate of human societies hinged almost exclusively on agricultural procedures. It is not surprising then that land rights have historically been very important in shaping our social hierarchies, both in terms of class divisions and gender disparities. Southeast Asia is an area with peculiar geographic characteristics that constrained the reach of formal states and limit their ability to enforce their rulings. Such circumstances are ideal to brew a kind of diversity that is almost unseen anywhere else. 
This has been Pens Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at pen underscore exchange. Stay tuned and see you next time.